The presenting sponsor of Top Docs is Netflix. Recently, we've had a chance to speak with the directors of several of Netflix's Emmy-nominated documentaries. We talked to Andrew Rossi about the Andy Warhol Diaries, Cootie Simmons and Chike Oza told us about the making of Genius, a Kanye trilogy, and most recently, Felicity Morris gave us the backstory to the Tinder swindler. Check out these conversations in our feed and watch these documentaries, now available on Netflix. Hi, I'm Ken Jacobson, and welcome to Top Docs. Today, we're talking to Brad Lichtenstein, the director and producer of the documentary When Claude Got Shot. The film had its world premiere at the 2021 South by Southwest Film Festival and is nominated for the Emmy Award for Exceptional Merit in Documentary Filmmaking. The film premiered on PBS's Independent Lens series in May of this year and currently can be seen if you have a PBS passport. Visit the film's website at whenclaudgotshot.org for more information. Brad Lichtenstein is the founder of 371 Productions and an award-winning filmmaker, a two-time Emmy nominee and winner of two DuPonts. His films include Messwood, American Reckoning with Yoruba Rishin, The Ghosts of Attica, and There Are Jews Here. So a big topic of conversation between me and Brad was the making a film about and with a very close friend. And Brad was very close to this situation. He was with Claude's son when Claude got shot, and Claude stayed with him after leaving the hospital. We talked about the challenges and the unique opportunities, as well as responsibilities, for telling such an important story, one that truly changed the course of Claude's life, his family's life, and the lives of many other people as well. I think this film is so good and so well made. It's not flashy. It doesn't play with the documentary form, nor should it have. But it tells the story and gets deep inside the conflicted feelings of all these people whose lives are forever changed by gun violence. In fact, I think the internal conflicts are so deep and fundamental that we see these folks engaged in a kind of existential struggle with themselves and with the criminal justice system. The events depicted here took place in Milwaukee, and the city is an important character in the film. It's a place that people love and call home, but tragically can't continue to live in peacefully. When Claude Got Shot is a must-watch film, and I hope you enjoy my conversation with Brad as much as I enjoy talking to him. As usual, if you do like this interview, please follow us and subscribe wherever you listen to podcasts and do tell a friend. Also, please follow us on Twitter at TopDocsPod. And now my conversation with Brad Lichtenstein, the director and producer of When Claude Got Shot. Brad Lichtenstein, welcome back to Top Docs. My pleasure. Thank you for inviting me. Can you give us a brief logline of the film? When Claude Got Shot is about three strangers who come together over a weekend of gun violence and their lives are inextricably tied together from that point forward. So Brad, congratulations on When Claude Got Shot. It's an incredibly powerful film, beautifully made. And I want to first talk about your friendship with Claude and Kim Motley. How did you meet and become friends? Claude and Kim are Milwaukee natives, even though they don't live in Milwaukee anymore. And when Anne, my wife, I moved from New York to Milwaukee in 2003, they had a child in the same preschool class as our son, Ben. Their son is named Sol. And we went to one of the parent gatherings a couple weeks into daycare. 
And we met them and sat down in those tiny little chairs that they have in preschool and just started talking and getting to know each other. I just really liked each other. And we became fast friends. They ended up leaving Milwaukee in 2008, but they would come to visit in the summer for an extended amount of time. And some configuration of the Motley family would always stay at our house, sometimes a whole family. In the case of when Claude got shot in 2014, when that happened, their son, who's the same age as my son, was staying with us. And actually, we were on our way to go hang out in the park when we got the news, and I had to let him know what had happened. So we're just really close family friends, have been for a long time. What was it like for you to have to break that news to Seoul? I guess maybe surreal is the word. Time slows down. Generally in like emergencies, I tend to do well in emergencies because I tend to get very focused on what needs to happen. And then I feel upset later. So in that moment, I can remember my first thought being, I've got to convey this to Seoul, but I also have to let them know that his dad is okay. I had gotten a text from one of Claude's sisters. And one of the details she said is that he is talking, which felt to me like the most important thing I should tell Seoul is that your dad is still talking. And, you know, after that, it was just bizarre. I had never known anybody intimately who'd been shot before. And I kind of started realizing how lucky we are and, and how special, I mean, I know it sounds cliche, but just how special life is. That's the kind of thought that slams you in the face is like, here's my friend who, you know, I'm supposed to see actually like the next day, we we're all gonna get together. And suddenly he could be gone. What can you say about that? And of course, it was mixed in with a lot of logistics because Kim was out of the country, his wife, and we're figuring out how to get her here. And I think she ended up staying with us. And then Claude came home from the hospital to our house. And you know how those moments are when in tragedy, you're also busy with just the technical things. Like we needed to get him a place where he could stay downstairs because he couldn't really walk up and down the stairs because of the wound. So setting him up and just all the medical stuff. For people whose only familiarity with these events is from the film, I'm sure this comes as quite a surprise to hear how intimately you were involved with the family from the beginning and throughout mm -hmm. this shooting and its aftermath. I want to ask you about something you said in your director's statement. You say, to be honest, there are a lot of reasons why I wish I had not made this movie. Can you elaborate on that? Well, one reason is the one that I just shared. I mean, the reason we made this movie is because my friend was shot. And I would love for that had never to have happened, as would a lot of people in his family and his friends. And then the other piece of it is about race and that I'm a white filmmaker digging deep into a story that really is seated in the Black community. And honestly, I think that if it weren't for the fact that Claude is one of my best friends in the entire world, and the fact that I was in a position also to really help with his recovery by going to surgeries with him and offering our house as a place for recovery and the support of our family, I don't think I would feel justified in making this film. So one of the reasons why I say that, a long time ago when I first started writing about the film for proposals and stuff, I would always quote Anahasi Coates, and I will paraphrase, but basically that the phrase that often gets used by white people of black on black violence is itself a violent phrase. And that was kind of kind of right into the territory I was marching into and super aware of that. So what that meant to me was that I would be doing, and I did a lot of conscience 
checking throughout the process of making that film. That took a lot of different forms. It had a lot to do with checking in a lot with Claude and his family. And it had to do with also leaning on a lot of filmmakers who I'm close to check myself in a lot of different ways, just subject myself to other eyes and other lenses. So what was the process of deciding with Claude and Kim whether to make the film and how to make it? It happened rather quickly, to be honest. I think maybe day two of him being out of the hospital, the scene that you see in film, a police detective coming to interview Claude and Kim and to deliver the news that she knows who it was that that shot Claude, that she knows it's a young boy, 15 years old, named Nathan. That scene happened in my living room. And I was present for it off camera. Kim had been the subject of a documentary about her work in Afghanistan. And that was made by a Danish film company. And so they had sent somebody to shoot a couple of scenes around the shooting, thinking that there might be a way to work that into their film. And really kind of right after that scene, I found myself off to the side in the kitchen talking to Kim about the fact that this company was filming it. And then I can't remember if she brought it up to me or I brought it up to her, but we mutually said, I don't think this is for her film, but she thinks that this is film that made about what Claude is going through. And then Claude came over and I don't remember the exact sequence of events, but we got into that conversation. And I expressed some eagerness in the sense that I don't think that many people have access to what it's really like to live through the aftermath of a shooting. And of course, we had no idea what would unfold. And also the reticence around, you know, am I really the right person to make this film? And I gotta say, Claude and Kim were probably the most frequent and vocal advocates for me to make the film. In fact, when we started, because, you know, we didn't plan to make this film, obviously. We didn't really have, we didn't have any money. All we had really was me and a camera. And then we slowly started to raise money. So it was a very intimate affair for a very long time at the beginning. One of the characters in the film is the city of Milwaukee itself. Can you talk about Claude's tormented relationship with Milwaukee and why it's going to always remain such an important part of his life, whether he lives there or not? I think Milwaukee has two sides for Claude. One side that he loves to hug because it's a community where he's very known. It's a tight community for him. A lot of people who he's friends with today are friends from high school. And a lot of like superstars for the community have come out of that school, whether it was excelling in sports or politics or business or science or what have you, a lot of pride. And his core group of friends come out of that school and then some other places in the neighborhood. He just literally, you see a little snippet in the film where he's walking down the street and someone drives up on him and honks and, hey, I haven't seen you. It's just that kind of place. But at the same time, it's a very treacherous place for Black men. And some of these statistics might be familiar to your audience, but the state of Wisconsin incarcerates more Black men per capita than any other state in the United States. That's more than Mississippi, more than Alabama places that we might have our minds go to first. There's a zip code in Milwaukee, either the zip code that he grew up in or maybe lived in later, but 53206 is a zip code where there are more black men in the criminal justice system than there are free. And it's often ranking in the top one or two or three in those surveys of the worst place to raise a black family. So it's a treacherous place. I use that word carefully. And there's actually a scene on the cutting room floor where he and his best friend, Scott, talk about the concept of black flight 
that Milwaukee is the kind of place where a lot of Black people, when they start to become successful, they leave. They go somewhere where they can really thrive. And that was the case for Claude and Kim. They moved to Charlotte, North Carolina, seeking a safer life for their kids, especially for their boy. They have two girls and a boy. And also, you know, as a place where they can have more thriving careers and not have to deal with so many of the hurdles that Milwaukee puts in front of you. It's also that kind of place in terms of the criminal justice system. In the film, we see that the judges and the assistant DA and the detectives are all white and the defendant and the victims are black. So how do the racial dynamics of the city serve as the context that in some ways almost predetermines that crimes like this with outcomes like this are commonplace? I think the thing about it is that the criminal justice system in a lot of cities, in Milwaukee certainly is maybe more pronounced than most, is a system that is not set up for the benefit of the community. One of the first things I noticed is you brought it up, Ken, and you can see in the film how white the officialdom is around the people whose lives are going to be impacted by the criminal justice system. I remember the first time we got to children's court and just standing there in the waiting room and noticing that racial disparity. And I thought about Peter Nix, who did the film The Waiting Room about these kinds of dynamics to some degree in hospitals. And I thought I should do something about this in criminal courts. It was so overwhelming and feels so obvious. And where that plays out, I think, is when a judge, now this is not to say that there are no black judges in Milwaukee, there are. And frankly, one of the judges, Judge Mosley in Milwaukee, has been a leading advocate for criminal justice reform. It just goes to prove that point. He lives in Milwaukee. He lives in the Black community. He understands a lot of what families are going through. And consequently, he's transformed the way justice works in his courtroom to the extent that he can. Obviously, he's very constrained by some of the laws. In the case of what happened when Claude got shot, I don't know, maybe I shouldn't give away a spoiler. There's a very consequential scene, let's just say, in which the outcome that Claude and everybody involved once is not the outcome that they get in large part because the predominantly white criminal justice system doesn't see things the same way and doesn't share the same concerns. It's so pronounced in Milwaukee. After the attempted carjacking that results in Nathan shooting Claude, Nathan and his crew continue on their crime spree. When he attempts to carjack Victoria Davison, she pulls out her gun and shoots Nathan, leaving him severely wounded and eventually paralyzed. When she's told about this in the interrogation room and told he's only 15, she's quite shaken. So now it seems we have three primary victims, Claude, Victoria, and now Nathan, who is both perpetrator and victim. Things seem to be just multiplying out of control. When did Victoria become a part of the film? And how do you think her inclusion in it affected the themes and the story that you were telling? Yeah, she goes by Vicky these days. And from pretty much the beginning, felt like I wanted both Vicky and Nathan to participate because it gives the audience a 360 degree view of gun violence. And, you know, makes a point that there are victims, that there are people who suffer on every side of the gun, so to speak. So with Vicky from pretty early on, Kim started to say that she wanted to maybe represent her in court. Partially so that there could be a coordinated victim's voice when it comes to the court system. And so she reached out to Vicky. And as soon as she reached out to Vicky, I felt like I was in a good position permission-wise. Of course, I talked to Kim and Claude about it, but to reach out too. 
And even before they met, which you see in the scene in the film, when they first meet, I went and visited with Vicky and I met her. I met her husband very briefly, Matt. I met the kids and I met her mom. The thing about, I think, Vicky's story that's so important is that we live in this land of rhetoric around gun violence. And one of the things that the NRA and its supporters like to say is that the best way to stop a person with a gun is a good guy, in this case, a good woman with a gun. And we understand from statistics that you actually make your life more unsafe if you present a gun in a volatile situation. But the other thing that we rarely ever talk about is the trauma a person experiences when they shoot somebody. In Vicky's case, she's a nurse, but she studied to save lives. And she ended up shooting a boy who was only a couple of years older than her boy, her oldest boy. And it traumatized her to such an extent that it took years for her to get back on track. She had been on track to get a master's in nursing when we first met her. And I'm happy to say that she just got that master's. But here we are, it's been eight years. And for a long time, she experienced all kinds of anxiety that was associated with having shot Nathan and used the gun and, and also of being accosted, the whole affair. That's a story that doesn't get told very often. It's certainly not a story that the uh, political debate wants to include. So I felt like it was absolutely important to include it. I agree. And it's one of the reasons why this film is so impressive, because it goes deep and it goes wide and shows us how the effects of gun violence are, unfortunately, almost permanent mm -hmm. and how it impacts people. Speaking of the story getting deeper and wider, we soon meet Regina Ragland, who is Nathan's mm -hmm. mother. And once we meet her, I think we find ourselves empathizing with her situation. Mm -hmm. And so I wanted to hear how you met her. And again, have you tell us how the film evolved sure. and changed once you met her. So one of the things in making the film, there was very little tension between me and Claude. But the one thing that there was some tension about actually was including Nathan and his family. There's not tension about that now at all, in fact. But at the time, Claude, as you see in the film, a lot of his arc is about him coming from a place of anger to a place of, dare I say, forgiveness for spoiler alert. But in the beginning, when he was still feeling the effects acutely, I mean, in the sense that he was going to the hospital every couple of weeks, he was having multiple surgeries. He was in no place really to start to consider Nathan's part of this story. But I was interested from the beginning. I should back up and say that my company had produced a 101-part podcast series on gun violence called Precious Lives. And I felt like I already understood from some of the reporting the impact of shooting someone as a young person has on your family and on you. So I was immediately interested in trying to reach out to Nathan. So in court, we would see each other and I started to build a relationship with Nathan and the family very slowly. I mean, so much pain. Regina, Nathan's mom, was devastated by what her son did, horribly embarrassed, ashamed. They had a hard time seeing Claude in the waiting room and in the courtroom. And it just kind of slowly happened that we started talking a little bit. And then one day... She shared with me this brief, but in the waiting room, a video on her phone of Nathan doing some rehabilitation, trying to learn how to walk. We were making a little progress in terms of access. 
And then this thing went down in the courtroom that was just so bizarre, but it basically boiled down to one of the police officers involved in the case who was coming just to sort of observe. She started taking pictures during the courtroom proceeding and she was kicked out by the judge and by the court officer. And when that happened, she, for some reason, said she was taking pictures on behalf of me as like backup is what she said. Of course, that was not true at all, but immediately the family turned to me and they said, they, I remember the words, they said, we're done with you. So I just kind of let it lie for a long time, maybe nine months or something. And then around Christmas time, I reached out to Regina and I just brought the poinsettia over to their house and just asked if we could sit and talk. And she agreed and we started to connect again. And then eventually she knew that we wanted to interview her. We'd been talking about it from the beginning and she knew we wanted to visit with Nathan. And eventually I started visiting with Nathan in prison. And eventually she said yes to an interview, but her condition was just one interview. It can be as long as we want. And it was like four and a half hours long. It was very long. She had a friend just off camera holding her hand the whole time which is a little bit why the framing was a little weird. We stayed friends and we still are in touch, but we agreed that we were never asked to interview her again and not therefore re-traumatize her. And I will tell you when I walked away, not from the interview, but from the first time that I down with her in her living room that night, we talked for a long time and I left and I pulled over three blocks later and I just broke down and cried. I think what it was, was just the hole that you feel in your house, in your life, when a child is missing. And that's essentially what she was experiencing. And I identified with it so much. I mean, I'm a parent, my children are the same age as Nathan now. So it just overwhelmed me. One of the key bits of information that we learn about Claude is that when he was 16, his father was being abusive to him. He moved out of the house, lived with his aunt in a boarding house, and he one day brought a knife to school for protection and was expelled from school. So Claude has this incident from roughly the same age that Nathan was at the time of the shooting in his own background, and he's always coming back to it. So I feel like the film documents an existential dilemma that Claude mm -hmm. has. He's terribly conflicted at one point when he's in the courtroom and it's one of the hearings and he says, what am I fighting? Who am I fighting? There are all these very basic, profound existential questions that he's facing. Yeah. So can you talk about making an existential film? <laughs> <laughs> I mean, I don't know if other film directors have this kind of insight into stories as they're unfolding. What I had insight into maybe wasn't on the level of existential questions, but certainly seeing that Claude's inside was really churning about how he felt about what happened to him and about Nathan and about the system and this entire experience can't not be transformative. It was transformative. I'm so grateful that one of the things that's like the bulwark of our friendship is that we really talk. We talk about things in life. And that moment you're talking about, he is now seeing Nathan for maybe the third or fourth time in a courtroom. And then he had just walked through the metal detector with the family. And he's starting to understand the humanity that is in that family and that is his. It's starting to come through the feelings of frustration and anger that he was having. Claude is such a smart person about the systems of power that we live in. 
he's keenly aware that all of us are like operating inside this system that, as we talked about before, incarcerates Black men at a rate that is wildly disproportionate to their population and discriminates. So it creates this dilemma. What is his goal here? How do you balance, you know, accountability and punishment with humanity and forgiveness? It does rise to an existential level for him. I think all of us as a, as a country should be considering people's fates at that level. Unfortunately, I don't think we do very often. It's why the system can throw away so many lives. You pointed out the parallel parts of Claude's journey as a teenager, Nathan's. So there's so many parallels, right down to the fact that both are basketball players. And when Claude got expelled from school, he lost all of his D2 and even, I think, one D1 offer to play ball, which would have been a huge stepping stone for him and also was something he loved. And when Nathan shot Claude, he eventually got expelled from the school he was attending. Well, eventually he went to prison. He was not able to continue playing basketball, which is something he truly believed and his family actually believed could very well be a stepping stone for them out of some of their circumstances. So those parallels created the bedrock of empathy for Claude. Maybe those parallels are more like a beacon and Claude saw the light of that beacon and started walking towards it which is really what the third act of the film is all about. Speaking of which, I need to ask you about two scenes here quickly before we go. One of the key scenes, which is the gravitational center, maybe the black hole of the film, is the sentencing hearing. Everything mm -hmm. has been moving toward this sentencing hearing. The assistant DA asks for 10 to 15 years. Victoria testifies. And then we hear from Claude and we hear from Kim. And Kim asks for a sentence of five years, and she makes the pretty remarkable statement, we all believe in Nathan. But then the judge, after saying there will be no winners here, issues his ruling, which is 12 and a half years in prison, which is exactly in the middle of what the DA had asked for. I just wanted to ask you, it appears that you guys are behind glass or something when you're shooting this. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Can you just we talk are. briefly about how you shot this and what you were going through emotionally and as director of this film as these events were playing out? Yeah, it was intense. Immediately before that, Tim and Claude have an impromptu conference, if you will, but she is his lawyer, about what to recommend sentencing. And the crux of the whole thing is what we were just talking about, that Claude sees himself on this kind of seesaw between what he feels like is accountability that Nathan owes and what is being accountable to his community and knowing how many Black boys are sent to prison. Kim had just been at the jail, the county facility, and seen so many boys just completely out of sorts, being held way beyond what would be humane as they awaited sentencing. And she shares that with Claude. And throughout this process, mind you, we keep hearing from the system, from the assistant DAs, et cetera, that they care about the victims, that the victims, if they were willing, and Claude was willing to be at the center of this process, will be listened to. And then what we witness is that the judge didn't listen to them, which I think goes to a lot of the things we were just talking about. It's like, what is compelling that judge? Is it the same set of concerns that Claude has? Maybe to some degree, but certainly not to the degree that Claude is feeling the responsibility towards his community. So it's, it's a devastating scene and the wail 
I will never forget the howling wail of Nathan's mom, of Regina, when the judge ruled on the sentencing. And she realizes that her boy is going to go away for a very long time. And she shouts, you know, we've been railroaded. I knew it. I knew it. She's just repeating it over and over. It felt like, I imagine it must feel if you are in a theater of war and someone beloved has just been shot or killed or some other crime against humanity is happening and you just feel helpless. And honestly, the scene was technically very difficult. So it was hard to kind of balance that and the emotion. We were going to take a feed because they were not allowing all the cameras and then we couldn't get the feed. So I asked a cameraman for one of the news channels if he would make sure he kept rolling before middle and end for me. And then I would license the footage. So the courthouse scene is like that. And I'll tell you, the truth is news directors often don't want to like really make time for independent filmmakers either. So I was a little worried about that. And the reporter for that station who had been following the story actually agreed to meet me. I tell no lie on a rainy night in a parking lot to hand me the footage on a drive. <laughs> and I, we still licensed it, but I just wanted to make sure it didn't get copied over, that they didn't ignore me. So thankfully she did that. And then we went down the hallway and there's a shot in which we pan over without cutting from Regina, who is, as I described, you're just wailing and breaking down in the hallway. And Nathan is wheeled by her and then out towards prison. And then we hand without cutting over to Claude, who's watching all this and the emotion on his face is like nothing I've ever encountered before in filming anything. He's devastated too. He sees the profound loss that family is experiencing and it reads on his face and he's comforted by his sisters. And in that moment, I, Alan Teichma, who was shooting, I just whispered in his ear, I said, do not move. Do not just, you know, count to two or three and then slowly pan around to find Claude. And he did. From a technical standpoint, he really captured it. To me, that scene, it says everything about not just the way that the individuals are feeling, but also how caught they are in that system. Yeah, it's incredibly powerful. So two years after sentencing, Claude is still having multiple surgeries and he's fighting off enormous insurance bills that run in the tens of thousands of dollars that he can't really pay. And this leads to a scene where he and Kim are sitting down to try to deal with this. And totally understandably, they end up getting on each other's nerves and a nasty <laughs> argument results. In fact, at one point in the scene, I think Claude wants to cut the camera, but you managed to pretty much capture the whole thing. What was it well, we like cut. for we you? Cut, but then we came back. Okay, so you cut and then you come back. What was it like for you to be in the middle of this really unpleasant fight between these two people you love and who love each other, but under the stress of the situation, they just kind of lose it? I'll be honest. I think that because we're such good friends, they have seen Dan and I fight and I have seen them fight. So I didn't feel scared by it in the sense that, it, you know, I didn't think that this was going to be the end of their marriage, but I felt, should we be filming this? I was making a lot of eye contact actually with both of them when it was happening. And of course, what was going on in my mind too, is that this is real. The bills, the pressure, the ongoing surgeries, as you mentioned, it's real. Claude still has debt from being shot. Our system doesn't pay for this. And then he was 
getting cut off of his insurance. So you can understand that a couple would fight under that pressure. And honestly, I said to my editor when we were editing that scene, I don't think I would include the scene had it not been for the fact that they make up. And they make up in a very cute way. I mean, most audiences actually laugh at the end of that scene, which is great to see in a theater with a large audience because it's just so real. That's how we are. And it's also a scene I don't think, had I not been a very close friend, I would have been allowed to include. And of course, we showed the film to Claude and to Kim, and both of them were fine with that scene staying in. In fact, Kim is great. Kim is like, you have to leave that in. That's how it is. It's real. It is a scene that I think we can all relate to. At the end of the film, Claude and Nathan participate in a restorative justice program in Milwaukee. Can you explain for folks who aren't that familiar with it, what restorative Mm -hmm. justice is and what the goals of it are? And for folks who do know what restorative justice is, I should say that this was not a full-fledged restorative justice process. Restorative justice is what it sounds like. It's trying to restore justice, or maybe we say humanity in a relationship that doesn't have any very often because they've been defined by violence, like in the case of Nathan shooting Claude. And it's a practice that through a series of steps prepares each person to meet the other by surfacing their feelings about what happened and understanding a little bit about what they want from each other in a relationship before they meet and then meeting. And it often results in the person who did harm asking for forgiveness. And it often results in the person who was harmed granting forgiveness or not, but at least communicating directly. And then oftentimes there are subsequent working through the things that created this trauma and overcoming the violence and the trauma that happened to them. So in this case, it was sort of a mini version of that. There's a retired Supreme Court judge in Wisconsin named Janine Geske, amazing woman. She's done restorative justice all over the globe. She knew about the case and she said she would be interested in meeting with Claude if he wanted to meet with her. They had a meeting, which we filmed. And actually it was interesting because I think Claude was maybe a little bit on the fence, but once he started talking to Janine, he started to discover as he heard himself out loud, say the reasons why he does want to have a relationship with this young man. And that led to him asking Janine if she would go through the process of trying to set that up. And she did. And Nathan, as it turns out, very much wanted the same thing. There's so much we could talk about in this scene. As usual, Claude is of two minds. He wants Nathan to be accountable for what he did, but also wants to show him that they share a connection and he wants to express empathy for him. And at one point he says, you're a black male We're both in a unique situation when we talk about our position in this world. There are many sort of aha moments in this scene. Are there any in particular that you would like to talk about? My favorite part of that scene actually is where I think the real breakthrough in a relationship happens. And that's when Nathan says to Claude towards the end, he says to Claude, and I just want you to know I have restitution. So I'm going to try to pay you back. And Claude, obviously, you know, Claude and I are like the same age. And we're looking at this kid and it's so sweet that he wants to make amends in this way. And also so impossible that he's going to be able to pay the nearly $100,000 of medical bills that Claude has. 
And Claude kind of relaxes. You see his shoulders go down. He's like, man, just, you know, you take care of yourself and do your time and get out of here. You know, I appreciate it. That's what he says. He leads it. He's like, I appreciate it. And they have a laugh. And that laugh to me is the real breakthrough of the entire film in a way leading to it. There's the formal structure of restorative justice and they go through those steps. But when the two of them laugh together, they're seeing each other, just plain old naked human beings who were thrown into this circumstance and have gotten to this place where they can see the humanity in each other. And to me, that's just the most beautiful moment. So in the last scenes with Claude, he's going home after a day selling insurance. How ironic mm -hmm. is that? <laughs> and Claude says at one point, I don't think I'll ever have that sense of community as I have here. Milwaukee made me who I am, and I will always be that person. Later, he says, I'm still out there searching, looking for myself. So the shooting has clearly changed the course of his life and him. And now that we're even farther out from the shooting, which was in 2014, what can you tell us about your friend Claude's journey and his ongoing search for himself? In the timeline of the film, a big goal for Claude was he had completed law school during the course of our filming, which was huge to accomplish given what he was going through. And then he took the bar and that was his goal was to pass the bar in North Carolina. Unfortunately, he doesn't succeed at it twice. And for him, it was a kind of wake up call that he has a lot of trauma to process. And you know what would happen, I would witness it up close, is that he would study and then I guess maybe the word is choke, putting so much pressure on himself to achieve that goal, maybe in a way to kind of signal that he was over it because he would have accomplished a goal that he had before he was shot. And in the film timeline, you see him switching careers so that he can do the responsible thing and make money for his family. His wife works too, obviously. And then to say that he's still out there searching. Now, the film premiered at South by Southwest in 2021, the COVID years. I lose track a little bit. And starting then, Claude has been center in our impact campaign by design. And so I can say just as a close friend, I have watched him grow into this position of seeing that he has a platform and then using that platform to really talk to people about this theme of humanity and finding humanity in the morass of gun violence really is a pathway out as a way to prevent and reduce gun violence and its harm. And I think maybe in answer to your question, really what Odd is finding in this search is that he has this miracle of a voice and is using it more and more effectively as the days go by and as he does one event after another to really help people see that recognizing our humanity in this problem of gun violence is the way out and advocating for investment in young people, advocating for investment in violence prevention, strategies and peer-to-peer -peer disarming strategies. These are policy and practical things that are in practice in certain cities, but are answers that he and I both believe in. And I think for him, he really sees this as, I don't know if it's too strong of a word to say his calling 
for folks listening to the podcast who want to assist in that journey of all those things that you said Claude is working towards, do you have a recommendation for how people can get involved? Absolutely. So we're working with this amazing impact team called The League, and they have set up a website when ClaudeGotShot.org. Go to the website, you'll see the resources that they have created and the events that we're doing. And there's just multiple ways to get involved, whether it's sharing the curriculum that we're just about to release. We're using it as the kind of blueprint for an event. We've done screenings. I want to continue to do screenings. They're either maybe very youth focused, also doing screenings with formerly incarcerated people and their families. We've been doing screenings with people in the criminal justice system. One of the most powerful screenings we did was with the judicial and the criminal justice, the judges and the DAs and had a really eye-opening conversation. Don't underestimate how much room there is to grow in our understanding of how to behave more humanely and with more justice when it comes to dealing with crime, with the aftermath. When Kim said, we believe in Nathan, it very well could be a stand-in to say that we, this whole team, believe in young people and that we know that maybe the worst day in their life involved a shooting, but it doesn't have to be the last day in their life. And a lot of what we're doing with the campaign is to try to infuse that sense and the sense of humanity that emanates from Claude into the way the criminal justice system handles gun violence. Well, I couldn't agree with you more about Claude being a kind of miraculous voice here. He is quite an amazing guy. You're lucky to have him as a friend. And I would also say he's lucky to have you as a friend. You're a great filmmaker, Brad, and it's been a delight talking to you today. And congratulations on the Emmy nomination and on this remarkable film. Thank you very, very much, Ken. I appreciate it if you can tell us what's up next for you. It's a little dicey to talk publicly about what's next. We have three projects that are all sort of in one state. I can talk about a film that Yoruba Richin and I are co-directing, and it's about the 1898 insurrection and race massacre in Wilmington, North Carolina. And the way we're telling the story is both the history and also we're following singer, songwriter, performer, Rhiannon Giddens, who is writing an opera about the insurrection of 1898. And we're also telling the story of several descendants, both black and white, who are involved in a reparations movement in that town. Wow, that sounds fascinating. I'm very much looking forward to seeing that when it comes out. Me too. Since this is a return visit for you to Top Docs, do you happen to have another recommendation for a documentary hidden gem? I was just thinking about a film, and I'm going to be honest, I cannot even remember the name of it, but I was thinking of it a lot recently. It's about Toro Takamitsu, I believe I have his name right, who was the composer for a lot of Japanese directors in the 60s, 70s, and 80s, including Kurosawa. He did the soundtrack for Ron. It was this kind of deep dive into this very eclectic composer, and I just adored it. For some reason, I've been thinking about that film over and over. It stuck with me for whatever it's been, 20, four years since I watched it. Well, between the two of us, we'll have to figure out what the name of it is, and we will it's post called, that in the notes. 